Section 9 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Section 9, Chapter 3, Constantine's Successors to Jovian and the Struggle with Persia by Norman H. Baines. When we turn to Julian's action in the civil affairs of the West, our information is all too scanty. It is clear that he approached his task with a passionate conviction that at all costs he would relieve the lot of the oppressed provincials. He took part in person in the administration of justice, and himself revised the judgments of provincial governors. He refused to grant indulgences, whereby arrears of taxation were remitted, for he well knew that these imperial acts of grace benefited the rich alone. For wealth, when first the tribute was assessed, could purchase the privilege of delay, and thus in the end enjoy the relief of the general rebate. He resolutely opposed all extraordinary burdens, and when Florentius persistently urged him to sign a paper imposing additional taxation for war purposes, he threw the document indignantly to the ground, and all the remonstrances of the prefect were without avail. In Belgica, the Caesar's own representatives collected the tribute, and the inhabitants were saved from the exactions alike of the agents of the prefect and of the governor. So successful was his administration, that where previously for the land tax alone twenty-five ore had been exacted, seven ore only were now demanded by the state. But reform was slow, and in Julian's character there was a strain of restless impatience. He was intolerant of delays, and of the irrational obstacles that barred the highway of progress. It galled him that he could not appoint as officials and subordinates men after his own heart, admitted that Constantius sent him capable civil servants, yet these men who were to be the agents of reform were themselves members of the corrupt bureaucracy which was ruining the provinces. Indeed, might these nominees of his cousin be withstood? The undefined limits of his office might always render it an open question whether the assertion of the Caesar's right were not aggression upon imperial privilege. Julian's conscious power and burning enthusiasm felt the cruel curb of his subordination. Constantius wished loyally to support his young relative, had given him the supreme command in Gaul after the first trial year, and was determined that he should be supported by experienced generals. But Julian was far distant, and his enemies at court had the emperor's ear. For them his successes and virtues but rendered him the more dangerous. The eunuch gang, says Ammianus, only worked the harder at the smithies where calumnies were forged. At times they mocked the Caesar's vanity, and decried his conquests. At others they played upon the suspicions of Constantius. Julian was victor to-day, why not another Victorinus, an upstart emperor of Gaul, to-morrow? Imperial messengers to the west were careful to bring back ominous reports, and Julian, who knew how matters stood and was not ignorant of his cousin's failings, may well have feared the overmastering influence of the emperor's advisers. Thus constantly checked in his plans of reform alike religious and political, Already it may be, hailed as Augustus by his soldiery, and dreading the machinations of courtiers, he began, at first, perhaps in spite of himself, to long for greater independence. 
In 359 he was dreaming of the time when he should be no longer Caesar. The war in the east gave him his opportunity. While Julian had been recovering Gaul, Constantius had been engaged in a series of campaigns on the Danube frontier, and for this purpose had removed his court from Milan to Sirmium. An unimportant expedition against the Suevi in Rhaetia in 357 was followed in 358 by lengthy operations in the plains about the Danube and the Thais against the Cardi and various Sarmatian tribes who had burst plundering across the border. The barbarian territory was ravaged, and through the emperor's successful diplomacy, one people after another submitted and surrendered their prisoners. They were, in most cases, left in possession of their lands under the supremacy of Rome, but the Limigantes were forced to settle on the left instead of the right bank of the Tithe, while the Sarmate Liberi were given a king by Constantius, in the person of their native prince Zizais, and were themselves restored to the district which the Limigantes had been compelled to leave. The latter, however, in the following year, 359, discontented with their new homes, craved that they might be allowed to cross the Danube and settle within the empire. This Constantius was persuaded to permit, hoping thus to gain recruits for the Roman army, and thereby to lighten the burdens of the provincials. The Limigantes, once admitted upon Roman territory, sought to avenge themselves for the losses of the previous year by a treacherous onslaught upon the emperor. Constantius escaped, and a general massacre of the faithless barbarians ensued. The pacification of the northern frontier was now complete. Meanwhile, in the east, hostilities with Persia had ceased on any large scale since 351, and in 356 to 357 the prefect Musonianus had been carrying on negotiations for peace through Cassianus, military commander in Mesopotamia, with Tampsapur, a neighbouring satrap. But the moment was inopportune. Sapor himself had at length effected an alliance with the Chionite and Gelani, and now, spring 358, in a letter to the emperor, demanded the restoration of Mesopotamia and Armenia. In case of refusal, he threatened military action in the following year. Constantius proudly rejected the shameful proposal, but sent two successive embassies to Persia in the hope of concluding an honourable peace. The effort was fruitless. Court intrigue deprived Ursicinus, Rome's one really capable general in the east, of the supreme command, and in spite of the prayers of the provincials, he was succeeded by Sabinianus, who in his obscure old age was distinguished only by his wealth, inefficiency, and credulous piety. During the entire course of the war, inactivity was the one prominent feature of his generalship. On the outbreak of hostilities in 359, the Persians adopted a new plan of campaign. A rich Syrian, Antoninus by name, who had served on the staff of the general commanding in Mesopotamia, was threatened by powerful enemies with ruin. Having compiled from official sources full information alike as to Rome's available ammunition and stores and the number of her troops, he fled with his family to the court of Sapor. Here, welcomed and trusted, he counselled immediate action. Men had been withdrawn from the east for the campaigns on the Danube, let the king no longer be content with frontier forays, let him without warning strike for the rich province of Syria, unravaged since the days of Gallienus. The deserter's advice was adopted by the Persians. On the advance of their army, however, the Romans, withdrawing from Chariae and the open countryside, burned down all vegetation over the whole of northern Mesopotamia. This devastation and the swollen stream of the Euphrates 
forced the Persians to strike northward through Safin. Sapor crossed the river higher in its course and marched towards Amida. The city refused to surrender, and the death of the son of Grumbates, king of the Chionite, provoked Sapor to abandon his attack on Syria and to press the siege. Six legions formed the standing garrison, a force which probably numbered some six thousand men in all. But at the time of the Persian advance, the country folk had all assembled for the yearly market, and when the peasantry fled for refuge within the city walls, Amida was densely overcrowded. None, however, dreamed of surrender. Ammianus, one of the besieged, has left us a vivid account of those heroic seventy-three days. In the end, the city fell, 6th October, and its inhabitants were either slain or carried into captivity. Winter was now approaching, and Sapor was forced to return to Persia with the loss of 30,000 men. The sacrifice of Amida had saved the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire, but the fall of the city also convinced Constantius that more troops were needed if Rome was to withstand the enemy. Accordingly, the emperor sent by the tribune Decentius his momentous order that the auxiliary troops, the Eruli Batavi Celtae and Petulantes, should leave Gaul forthwith, and with them three hundred men from each of the remaining Gallic regiments. The demand reached Julian in Paris, where he was spending the winter, probably January 360, and for him the serious feature of the dispatch was that the execution of the emperor's command was entrusted to Lupincinus and Gintonius, while Julian himself was ignored. The transference of the troops was probably an imperial necessity, but this could not justify the form of the emperor's dispatch. The unrelenting malice of the courtiers had carried the day. Constantius seems to have lost confidence in his Caesar. At first Julian thought to lay down his office, then he temporized. He professed that obedience to the emperor would imperil the safety of the province. He raised the objection that the barbarians had enlisted on the understanding that they should never be called upon to serve beyond the Alps. Lupincinus was in Britain fighting the Picts and Scots, while Florentius, to whose influence rumour ascribed the emperor's action, was absent in Vienne. Julian summoned him to Paris to give his advice, but the prefect pleaded the urgency of the supervision of the corn supply and remained where he was. While Julian played a waiting game, a timely broadsheet was found in the camp of the Celtae and Petulantes. The anonymous author complained that the soldiers were being dragged none knew whither, leaving their families to be captured by the Alemanni. The partisans of Constantius saw the danger. Should Julian still delay, they insisted, he would but justify the emperor's suspicions. His hand was forced. He wrote a letter to Constantius, ordered the soldiers to leave their winter quarters, and gave permission for their families to accompany them. Sintula, the Caesar's tribune of the stable, at once set out for the east with a picked body of Gentiles and Scutari, unwisely as events proved. The court party demanded that the troops should march through Paris. There, they thought, any disaffection could be repressed. Julian met the men outside the city and spoke them fair. Their officers he invited to a banquet in the evening. But when the guests had returned to their quarters, there suddenly arose in the camp a passionate shout, and crowding tumultuously to the palace, the soldiers surrounded its walls, raising the fateful acclamation, Julianus Augustus. Without, the army clamoured. Within his room, its leader wrestled with the gods until the dawn, and with the break of a new day, he was assured of heaven's blessing. When he came forth to face his men, he might attempt to dissuade them, but he knew that he would bow to their will. Raised upon a shield, and crowned with a standard-bearer's talk, 
the Caesar returned to his palace an emperor. But now that the irrevocable step was taken, his resolution seemed to have failed, and he remained in retirement, perhaps for some days. The adherents of Constantius took heart, and a group of conspirators plotted against Julian's life. But the secret was not kept, and the soldiers once more encircled the palace, and would not be contented until they had seen their emperor alive and well. From this moment Julian stifled his scruples, and accepted accomplished fact. After the flight of Decentius and Florentius, he dispatched Eutherius and his Magister Officinorum Pentarius as ambassadors to Constantius, while in his letter he proposed the terms which he was prepared to make the basis of a compromise. He would send to the east troops raised from the Deditici, and the Romans settled on the left bank of the Rhine. To withdraw the Gallic troops would be, he professed, to endanger the safety of the province, while Constantius should allow him to appoint his own officials, both military and civil, save only that the nomination of the Praetorian prefect should rest with the elder Augustus, whose superior authority Julian avowed himself willing to acknowledge. When the news from Paris reached Caesarea, Constantius hesitated. Should he march forthwith against his rebellious Caesar and desert the east, while the Persians were threatening to renew the attack of the previous year, or should he subordinate his personal quarrel to the interests of the state? Loyalty to his conception of an emperor's duty carried the day, and he advanced to Edessa. The fact that the Persians in this year were able to recover Singara, once more fallen into Roman hands, and to capture and garrison Bizabde, a fortress on the Tigris in Zabdicine, while the emperor remained perforce inactive, served to show how very earnest was his need of troops. Even the attempt to recover Bizabde in the autumn was unsuccessful. Meanwhile, Constantius, ignoring Julian's proposals, made several nominations to high officers in the west, and dispatched Leonus to bid the rebel lay aside the purple with which a turbulent soldiery had invested him. The letter, when read to the troops, served but to inflame their enthusiasm for their general, and Leonus fled for his life. But Julian still hoped that an understanding between himself and Constantius was even now not impossible. To save his army from inaction, he led them not towards the east, but against the Atuarian Franks on the lower Rhine. The barbarians, unwarned of the Roman approach, were easily defeated, and peace was granted on their submission. The campaign lasted three months, and thence, by Basel and Besançon, Julian returned to winter at Vienne, for Paris his beloved Lutetia lay at too great a distance from Asia. Letters were still passing between himself and Constantius, but his task lay clear before him. He must be forearmed alike for aggression and defence. By a display of power he sought to wrest from his cousin recognition and acknowledgment, while with his troops about him he could at least sustain his cause and escape the shame of his brother's fate. Recruits from the barbarian tribes swelled his forces, and large sums of money were raised for the coming campaign. In the spring of 361, Julian, by the treacherous capture and banishment of Vadumar, removed all fears of an invasion by the Alemanni, and about the month of July set out from Basel for the east. By this step he took the aggressive, and himself finally broke off the negotiations. This was avowed by his appointment of a prefect of Gaul in place of Nebridius, the nominee of Constantius, who had refused to take the oath of allegiance to Julian. Germanianus temporarily performed the prefect's duties, but retired in favour of Sallust, while Nevita was created Magister Armorum, and Jovius Questor. As soon as he was freed from the Persian war, Constantius had thought to hunt down his usurping Caesar 
and capture his prey while Julian was still in Gaul. He had set guards about the frontiers, and had stored corn on the lake of Constance, and in the neighbourhood of the Cochian Alps. Julian determined that he would not wait to be surrounded, but would strike the first blow, while the greater part of the army of Illyricum was still in Asia. He argued that present daring might deliver Simium into his hands, that thereupon he could seize the pass of Sutki, and thus be master of the road to the west. Jovius and Jovinus were ordered to advance at full speed through North Italy, in command, it would appear, of a squadron of cavalry. They would thus surprise the inhabitants into submission, while fear of the main army, which would follow more slowly, might overawe opposition. Nevita, he commanded, to make his way through Rhaetia Mediterranea, while he himself left Basel with but a small escort, and struck direct through the Black Forest for the Danube. Here he seized the vessels of the river fleet, and at once embarked his men. Without rest or intermission, Julian continued the voyage down the river, and reached Bononia on the eleventh day. Under the cover of night, Dagalaifus, with some picked followers, was dispatched to Sirmium. At dawn, his troop was demanding admission in the emperor's name. Only when too late was the discovery made that the emperor was not Constantius. The general, Lucilianus, who had already begun the leisurely concentration of his men for an advance into Gaul, was rudely aroused from sleep and hurried away to Bononia. The gates of Sirmium, the northern capital of the empire, were opened, and the inhabitants poured forth to greet the victor of Strasbourg. Two days only did Julian spend in the city, then marched to Suki, left Nevita to guard the pass, and retired to Nisus, where he spent the winter awaiting the arrival of his army. Julian's march from Gaul meant the final breach with Constantius. His present task was to justify his usurpation to the world. Thus the imperial pamphleteer was born. One apologia followed another, now addressed to the Senate, now to Athens as representing the historic centre of Hellenism, now to some city whose allegiance Julian sought to win. But he overshot the mark. The painting of the character of Constantius men felt to be a caricature, and the scandalous portraiture unworthy of one who owed his advancement to his cousin's favours. Meanwhile, Julian strained every nerve to raise more troops for the coming campaign. He was not yet strong enough to advance into Thrace to meet the forces under Count Martianus, and the news from the west forced him to realise how critical his position might become. Two legions and a cohort stationed in Simium he did not dare to trust, and so gave the command that they should march to Gaul to take the place of those regiments which formed part of his own army. On the long journey the men's discontent grew to mutiny. Refusing to advance, they occupied Aquileia, and were supported by the inhabitants who had remained at heart loyal to Constantius. The danger was very real. The insurgents might form a nucleus of disaffection in Italy, and thus imperil Julian's retreat. He gave immediate orders to Juvenus to return, and to employ in the siege of Aquileia, the whole of the main force now advancing through Italy. In the east, Constantius had marched to Edessa, spring 361, where he awaited information as to the plans of Sapor. It was only on the news of Julian's capture of the pass of Suki that he felt that the war in the west could no longer be postponed. At the same time, Constantius learned of Sapor's retreat, since the auspices forbade the passage of the Tigris. The Roman army, assembled at Hierapolis, greeted the emperor's harangue with enthusiasm. Abitio was dispatched in advance to bar Julian's progress through Thrace, and when Constantius had made provision in Antioch for the government of the east, he started in person against the usurper. Fever, however, attacked him in Tarsus, 
and his illness was rendered still more serious by the violent storms of late autumn. At Mopsucrene in Cilicia, he died on 3rd November 361, at the age of 44. Ammianus Marcellinus has given us a definitive sketch of the character of Constantius. His faults are clear as day. To guard the emperor from treason, Diocletian had made the throne unapproachable, but this severance of sovereign and people drove the ruler back on the narrow circle of his ministers. They were at once his informants and his advisers. Their lord learned only that which they deemed it well for him to know. The emperor was led by his favourites. Constantius possessed considerable influence, writes Ammianus in bitter irony, with his eunuch chamberlain Eusebius. The insinuations of courtiers ultimately sowed mistrust between his Caesar Julian and himself. They played upon the suspicious nature of the emperor, their whispers of treason fired him to senseless ferocity, and the services of brave men were lost to the empire, lest their popularity should endanger the monarch's peace. Even loyal subjects grew to doubt whether the emperor's safety were worth its fearful price. To maintain the extravagant pomp of his rapacious ministers and followers, the provinces laboured under an overwhelming weight of taxes and impositions, which were exacted with merciless severity, while the public post was ruined by the constant journeying of bishops from one council to another. Yet though these dark features of the reign of Constantius are undeniable, below his inhuman repression of those who had fallen under the suspicion of treason, lay a deep conviction of the solemnity of the trust which had been handed down to him from father and grandfather. For Constantius, the consciousness that he was representative by the grace of heaven of a hereditary dynasty carried with it its obligation and the task of maintaining the greatness of Rome was subtly confused with the duty of self-preservation, since a usurper's reign would never be hallowed by the seal of a legitimate succession. With a sense of this responsibility, Constantius always sought to appoint only tried men to important offices in the state. He consistently exalted the civil element at the expense of the military, and rigidly maintained the separation between the two services, which had been one of the leading principles of Diocletian's reforms. Sober and temperate, he possessed that power of physical endurance which was shared by so many of his house. In his early years he served as lieutenant to his father alike in east and west, and gained a wide experience of men and cities. Now on this frontier, now on that, he was constantly engaged in the empire's defence. A soldier by necessity, and no-born general, he was twice hailed by his men with the title of Sammaticus, and in the usurpations of Magnentius and of Julian, he refused to hazard the safety of the provinces and loyally sacrificed all personal interests in face of the higher claims of his duty to the Roman world. He was naturally cold and self-contained. He fails to awake our affection or our enthusiasm, but we can hardly withhold our tribute of respect. He bore his burden of empire with high seriousness. Men were conscious in his presence of an overmastering dignity and of a majesty which inspired them with something akin to awe. By the death of Constantius, the empire was happily freed from the horrors of another civil war. Julian was clearly marked out to be his cousin's successor, and the decision of the army did not admit of doubt. Eusebius and the court party were forced to abandon any idea of putting forward another claimant to the throne. Two officers, Theolaphus and Aligildus, bore the news to Julian. Fortune had intervened to favour his rash adventure, and he at once advanced through Thrace by Philippopolis to Constantinople. Agila was dispatched to Aquileia, and at length the besieged were convinced of the emperor's death, 
and thereupon their stubborn resistance came to an end. Negrinus, the ringleader, and two others were put to death, but soldiers and citizens were fully pardoned. When, on 11th December 361, Julian, still but thirty-one years old, entered the sole emperor his eastern capital, all eyes were turned in wondering amazement on the youthful hero, and for the rest of his life upon him alone was fixed the gaze of Roman historians. Wherever Julian is not, there we are left in darkness of the West, for example, we know next to nothing. The history of Julian's reign becomes perforce the biography of the emperor. In that biography, three elements are all important. Julian's passionate determination to restore the pagan worship, his earnest desire that men should see a new Marcus Aurelius upon the throne, and that abuses and maladministration should hide their heads ashamed before an emperor who was also a philosopher. And in the last place, his tragic ambition to emulate the achievements of Alexander the Great, and by a crushing blow to assert over Persia the preeminence of Rome. End of section nine.